Brooks for Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nine. Send it to him at area code 702-727-8499. 702-727-8499. Please limit your faxes to one or two pages. Everybody, it's a wild morning. I'm Art Bell, and we had Peter Davenport from the UFO Reporting Center on in the first hour. And there are sightings of fireballs and objects going on right now, and for the last two hours, all over the continental U.S. It is remarkable. Switchboards are jamming all over the place. I wonder what's going on. Boy, do I wonder. Anyway, in a moment, you're uh, in for a real treat. Joe McGonagall is going to be my guest, and let me tell you what he told himself, uh, myself, uh, he told me about him. <laughs> I am one of only two remote viewers from the project who was in both the Mead unit as well as the research side of the house at SRI uh, slash SAIC, the other man who is currently unknown to the public, huh? has about four uh, years on the research side. He is also an exceptional remote viewer. Within our lab, there are at least six of what I would call world-class viewers. In fact, I was the first viewer, number 001, recruited for Stargate and spent a little over seven years at Meade. When I retired from the military, I spent the rest of my 21 years in the project working at the Cognitive Sciences Lab while it was located at SRI and SAIC. I am still a full-time research associate with that uh, same lab, which is now located with the Laboratories for Fundamental Research of Palo Alto. There is a website for that. We've got it up there now. By the way, we've also got Joe's personal website up, and nobody's ever seen that before because it was it's just now born. So if you want to read more about Joe, that's the place. We've got the link. Just go to my website, www.artbell.com, and click on the appropriate uh, link, and we'll, we'll test uh, Joe's site and see how much traffic he can take. In the past, says Joe, I've been challenged numerous times to do a live, real-time remote viewing on camera. I've successfully demonstrated this ability on double-blind targets for ABCs put to the test, Reader's Digest, Mysteries of the Mind, and the Paranormal World of Paul McKenna in London. I've also been filmed live at the J.B. Ryan Research Center in Durham while under the strictest of controls. All but one was a first-place match, the exception being a target done at the J.B. Ryan Center, which was a second-place match. We'll find out what that means. Contrary to uh, common belief, I'm very well-trained and well-versed in what is now commonly referred to as controlled remote viewing, CRV, or what originally began as Mr. Ingo Swan's training methodology. Ingo Swan is considered the father of remote viewing. I'm also, he says, well-trained in at least four other techniques developed and experimented with at SRI, S-A-I-C, I was trained as a dowser while at SRI. 
have participated in a number of psychokinesis or PK experiments. I'm intensely interested in those. While some choose to say that I am just a natural psychic, I have never considered myself in that way. While I probably possess some degree of natural talent, since the beginning of the project, I have learned remote viewing is just like everyone else has. Uh, I've learned about it the hard way, through trial and error and a hell, hell, hell of a lot of hard work over many years. From the latter part of 1982 until September 1st, 84, I was the only remote viewer doing the remote viewing at Fort Meade because every wa everybody else was in training. It is one of the reasons I received the Legion of Merit uh, for remote viewing. I had direct contact with and did remote viewing for 16 major agencies, the alphabet uh, agencies of the U.S. government, from 78 through 95. Uh, much of that, that remote viewing was successful. Some of it was not. 99.9% .9 of it is still classified and has not been released. Wow, 99.9% .9 of what was done is still classified. He's got a new book. It's called The Ultimate Time Machine. And that should certainly serve to whet your appetite for what's about to come. Joe McGonigal um, should not need an introduction to anybody who knows anything about remote viewing. For those who don't, we'll do a brief 101, and then we'll get down to biz. Here we go, um, all the way back east uh, to Joe McGonagall. Joe, welcome to the program. Hello, Or How are you doing? I'm just fine, and I'm sure glad to have you back on. Uh, we did, of course, uh, sort of a multiple thing one time, but uh, having you back by yourself is uh, a very, very good idea. Were you really remote viewer 001? That's correct. That was my number while I was at Fort Meade. It was later uh, number 372 while I was uh, with the Cognitive Sciences Lab. 99.9% huh. um, .9 of what you did with the government is still, you say, classified. Uh, what about cutting it down to about 70% this morning? <laughs> uh, I don't want to spend any time in jail, so I probably won't do that. But uh, eventually I suspect that most of it will probably be declassified. Uh, there are some things that will probably never be declassified. But. Is there any way that you can, even in general, refer to the kind of material it was? In other words, was it uh, mostly, for example, Cold War-related? Uh, the vast majority of it was Cold War-related. There, there were a lot of things uh, that essentially revolved around some very difficult targeting of missing items, uh, downed aircraft, things like that. All right. Here's a question. While most of it is still classified, you can surely tell me this. What percentage of success uh, did you have in identifying specific locations of, for example, a downed aircraft? How successful was remote viewing for the government? In terms of location, locational ability or locating missing items, uh, it probably doesn't do as well as it does for other things where you're describing uh, something. In, in the, the search for missing items, it, the difficulty comes in in that you can have a near-perfect description of the location, but then you have to put it somewhere on the face of the planet.
Mm-hmm. The uh, information that's generally provided isn't as detailed as one would like it to be in terms of defining a location. Well, when they did uh, the 30-minute night line, and it was announced to the world that our government for 20 years had been doing um, this uh, project and was giving up on it, they said they were giving up on it because it didn't work. Well, that's not really what they said. What they actually what they actually said at the time was uh, it was not it, it didn't have the the kind of dependability uh, that they needed or required to do uh, the kind of intelligence work that they wanted to do. Mm. Uh, that's not exactly true. <laughs> I didn't think it was. Uh, there, there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of myth that's grown out of the the amount of accuracy and whatnot around remote viewing. Uh, I think what's what's incredibly important to say here is that uh, the kinds of jobs that we did with remote viewing were very much like the alternative healer uh, kind of thing, um, where someone is declared essentially terminal by uh, modern medical science, uh, and they show up at the, al- the alternative healer's uh, place and place of business and and the alternative healer can only claim 35 or 40 percent success rate, which is essentially 35 or 40 percent miracles. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that still is an extremely high percentage because by then you are the last gasp. I mean, police departments do that in murder cases when they're finally frustrated totally. They go to a psychic. Exactly right. And, and they're usually able to develop new leads in some cases. In some cases... Uh, Missing information is provided that lead lead them directly to the you know to the appropriate suspect or the solving of the crime. What do you say to people who say they believe remote viewing is a bunch of hooey? Well, uh, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Uh, what what I base my judgment about remote viewing on is is how solid the science is that supports it. There's been now 25 years of research that's been done in remote viewing, and most of that research has been replicated in, in many different labs as well as different universities. And statistically, it's carried across from lab to lab, regardless of who's doing the research or how the research is being done. So scientifically, um, it is not really controversial. In other words, it is sufficiently established as real? Oh, I, I, I would think so. I think the people at that balk at that idea are the ones who immediately raise the question of, well, you can't tell us how the information gets from one place to the other. So obviously this isn't very good science, which is, of course, bunk. Um, There's a lot of things in science that we don't know how it happens, but we do know it happens. Are you a natural psychic? Well, I'm about as natural as any human being walking the planet. Uh, in fact, we we think, and this is pretty much established by the research, that every human being that walks on the planet is psychic to some degree. Well, they're they're capable to some degree, but there surely are an awful lot of psychic bricks walking around out there. Well, that's true, and and it's the primary reason for that art is they just uh, they either have uh, some something in their belief structure that prevents them from uh, from acknowledging it or. Or there's something that uh, there's something to their their ability that they just don't pay any attention to. Um, 
So when, when we say you're a natural psychic, um, you are very open to this sort of thing. You've been involved in it for a very long time. You believe in it. And I guess in a way that makes you a natural psychic. But you were the first remote viewer in the government program. So there must have been something about you at the moment you were chosen that caused you, uh, above all others, to be chosen. Well, actually, the the initial selection uh, process uh, involved probably evaluating something like 2,000 people, and uh, some of the requirements that that they were trying to fill were uh, had to do with whether or not the people they interviewed were open to to this particular subject, as well as to whether or not they were skeptical. Uh, you know, had a healthy skepticism towards it. They didn't want somebody who was a total believer, and they didn't want someone who was not critical in their thinking. How Can you tell me this? How did it develop that the government even decided to have this program? Well, there's, there's actually two reasons. Uh, the, the primary reason has to do with uh, the fact that, the, the, uh, that there was a paper that was printed by a Dr. Kenneth Kress in the CIA, it was originally classified secret. You can now find it somewhere on the internet. But um, back back in the 70s, it was uh, it was a paper written about uh, remote viewing as being studied at SRI at the time, using uh, Inga Swan and a uh, psychic by the name of Pat Price. And in this paper, he proposed that it it would probably be of value from an intelligence collection standpoint. Well, the the Army saw that in had also done some studies of the sur- survival rate of certain kinds of soldiers that were at great hazard mm. during warfare, and they decided that uh, one of the commonalities between these kinds of soldiers and ones who don't survive is that they're probably very psychic people. So they put the two together and decided that this might be worth something, uh, and this might be worth doing. The suggestion there is that somebody is able to mentally, somehow, even subconsciously, discern where a particular danger is, psychically, I guess you could say, and avoid that danger and that bullet doesn't hit them. Is that right? Yeah, they, in effect, they essentially zig instead of zag at the right time. Um, it, it's probably because uh, psychic, psychic functioning in general is is probably uh, taking taking place somewhere in the primitive brain and not in the the more modern uh, areas of the oh, brain. Oh, no kidding! Um, most people I've talked to have thought that the psychic ability occurred in the front frontal lobe portion of the brain, not in the more basic parts of the brain. Well, actually, the the processing may be taking place in the frontal lobe, but the actual delivery of the information is probably taking place in the primitive part of the brain. Um, we talked for a second before we came on the air tonight, um, just to divert from where we're going. And I, I told you that we have these incredible numbers of reports of things coming out of the sky tonight, fireballs, uh, objects being seen all over the country. I mean, the reports are just flying in from all over the country. Something's going on. And you said something kind of interesting. You said uh, maybe there's a pending geologic event. Right. Uh, there, there's been a lot that I've seen in print and uh, have read, and, and there's a lot of conjecture about uh, these sort of light phenomena occurring. 
around or in areas just prior to a major geologic event. And I'm, I'm just kind of interested in seeing now, with all this going on, whether or not we have a major earthquake somewhere uh, somewhere in the continental United States or whether or not we have some geologic event that equates to this mm-hmm. sightings. Fascinating. Um, all right. Uh, you have written a book called The Ultimate Time Machine. Time is something that really has been on my mind a lot lately the nature of time. And most remote viewers that I've talked to have suggested that moving through time, in effect, is possible with remote viewing to the past or to the future, and obviously the present, which the Army would be mostly interested in, I'm sure. Uh, is that true? Uh, yeah, that's true, basically. Uh, there, there's some conditions, however, when when one attempts to remote view the past, one of the conditions is that uh, you're going to be rubbing rubbing a lot of fur the wrong way. Uh, if you go back and remote view an event, for instance, in the past, and then report what you what you see from a remote viewing standpoint, you're ruining their revisionist history. R- well, yes, <laughs> <laughs> history, in my opinion, and and I say this quite extensively in the book. Uh, history is uh, is pertinent to where you're standing in your your sort of geopolitic and uh, theologic view of the world uh, within that time frame. We we are constantly rewriting history to fit our needs of the time. Is there a lot of uh, difficulty when you begin viewing uh, theological events? Uh, geological events? Theological. Theological. Yes. Uh, well, yes, there are. Um, I, one of the problems that I deal with is I, of course, have certain beliefs and constructs, and even though I may be blind to the particular target of interest, that is, if I understand it's uh, centering around a, geo, uh, a theological belief, um, certainly my likes and dislikes come into play. So I have to be very careful about how that might interfere with uh, my conjecture. How do you separate yourself from your belief system when you're looking at something close to it? You can't, really. Um, That's one of the downsides to any psychic functioning. Uh, The person carries in their own prejudice, their own uh, desires, likes, dislikes, that sort of thing. But the whole idea of the disciplines that were recorded over a long period of time was to cut through that. You're saying... They don't entirely work. No. Well, no. You can't. You know, that would be asking a human being to become a machine, and that's not that's not quite possible. Uh, you, there are things you can do to reduce the effect, but in in actuality, there there will still be an effect. So uh, there has to be an independent analysis of the information. Joe, have you ever, have you ever looked um, at the life of Christ? Uh, yes, I did, in fact. Um, it was not a remote viewing. It was an explorer session with uh, uh, Mr. Robert Monroe at the Monroe Institute. Oh, I interviewed Robert, uh, Bob, before he died, just before he died. Um, good. It's a good place to hold it. We're at the bottom of the hour. What a question. Uh, have you ever uh, viewed the life of Christ? The answer is yes. Uh, the Monroe Institute of all places. My, my, my. When we come back, we'll ask about that. I'm Art Bell. This 
is Coast to Coast AM. with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from outside the U.S. First, dial your access number to the USA. Then, 800-893-0903. If you're a first-time caller, call Art at 702-727-1222. From east of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, Call Art at 1-800-618-8255 or call Art on the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye. Wild ride, that's what we've got going on. Good morning, Joe McGonigal is here. He is our nation's first military remote viewer, number 001. A natural psychic? I don't know. Depends on the definition, I guess. We'll get back to him and the viewing of Jesus. See how I start with the easy questions? This is the end of side one. Please leave the cassette exactly where it is, flip it over, and begin again. Back to the best of Art Bell. Well, all right, here we go. Um, Joe, welcome back. You notice how I start with all the easy questions first. Right, I noticed that. <laughs> um, but that is also of intense uh, curiosity to me. And so you had a session uh, with Robert Monroe on the life of Jesus. What, what did you find? Uh, well, it was, it was kind of an interesting session in that uh, there... There was a lot of uh, interesting details about uh, why there's a great deal of similarity between the uh, the man Jesus and some of the other uh, some of the other prophets that have existed over the course of history. Was Jesus a supernatural being? I I suspect he was, and there. There was some things within the explore session that would seem to indicate that. Um, there's actually a full transcript of the entire session in my new book, The uh, Ultimate Time Machine. You uh, you equated him to a prophet. Uh, well, a prophet in the sense that that's how we regard uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people on the face of the planet regard Jesus as a prophet. Um. Was he viewed as indeed what uh, Christians believe him to be, the Son of God? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get you in trouble, I'm sure, if I can. No, I, I, think, I think the answer is yes, in that, uh, in that we, we all are the creations of, of the Creator. I mean, uh, he, he, as uh, a representative of the Creator on Earth, was 
certainly a son or a, a construct of the Creator. So, is this uh, Joe McGonagall, the remote viewer, saying this, or Joe McGonagall, the uh, okay. uh, the the uh, the true believer? Actually, it's uh, it's me reporting what was reported, trying to report what was what I can remember about the. Uh, the events of the session. So that, this really yeah. then, this came out of the session, and, and in other words, I'm saying the session determined there was a creation force, there is a creator, and this was uh, a man, a supernatural man, associated with that creator. Right. I, I, would, I would agree with those, those uh, conjectures. Um, the, the thing to remember is that uh, this this was a, a what Bob used to call an explorer session. It was done in an altered state uh, under the the effects of what he he used uh, at the time. It, well, it's a thing called hemisync, which is their hemisync yes. that they use. You have a hemisync tapes, right? And it it was not uh, it was not a remote viewing, but it was a very interesting session in that it was still a uh, what I would call a blind session. In other words, uh, going in, I had no idea what I was reporting on. Also, uh, I was uh, I was unable to remember most of what I had said over the uh, two hours or two and a half hours that it lasted. That's remarkable. That that really is chilling. You had no idea whatsoever uh, what the target was. No, not going in. Uh, eventually, I think I realized what it was. So you have to read the. The transcript with, uh, you know, a little salt because I, you know, obviously have some personal, you know, feelings about it, which I can't help but mix in with uh, the reporting, I'm sure. May I ask this? Uh, during the session, as you were saying whatever you were saying, was there feedback being given to you that would have suggested to you the target? Eventually, yes, that did occur. Um, what Bob would do is he would take whatever statements I would make and ask questions based on them. But uh, in actuality, he knew what he was asking questions about. So the way he asked questions uh, could very well have tainted the the, feed, the results. You know, the results. Mm -hmm. uh, th this is a great danger that occurs also in remote viewing, and it's very very difficult to to guard against, uh, which is one of the reasons why uh, anybody in the room with a remote viewer or anybody interacting with a remote viewer should be as blind to the target as remote viewer is. But you have done some very specific tests, haven't you? Very, In other words, extremely well-controlled tests. Oh, yeah. Uh, guaranteed double blinds where everything everything is done to uh, essentially guarantee that no one knew what the target was. One of these, uh, or some of these, were at Stanford? Oh, yeah. Uh, Stanford, uh, it, actually at SRI International. It's not called Stanford Research Institute any longer, but SRI International and at Science Applications International Corporation. Uh, how, how, how would a test like that go? Uh, can you describe what a double-blind test of this sort would be like? Well, yeah, I can I can talk about what was uh, what we term an intelligence simulation. Uh, we had an agency come to us, and and they essentially said we have some targeting material for you, and they gave us a black and white photograph of an individual that that no one in the lab knew. Right. And uh, they gave us three times on a specific date in the future, and they said describe where this person is at each of these times, uh -huh. and that was the some knowledge that anyone in the lab had. 
we did the targeting and we produced uh, very detailed descriptions of the events and places that this person was located at. Was was located at or would be located at? Would, would be located at. How far into the future? Uh, it was a matter of perhaps a week. A week? Oh, my God. Yeah. In one case, he was, uh, this particular individual was driving through an area at a specific time. And in another case, in another case, he was standing in a top secret facility that builds atomic weapons. Um, another case, he was standing next to a linear accelerator that was in operation. Holy smokes. Things like that. And, and you guys came up with this? Um, right. We described all four locations and four, all four events, uh, with, uh, unbelievable detail and accuracy. Uh, that, that was later. That was later independently judged by that group of people that tasked us. Didn't you ever wonder, when you were given uh, an assignment of this kind, whether you were setting somebody up uh, to be to, to be assassinated or hit or who, who the hell knows what? Well, one of the one of the unique things about remote viewing is that if you're if you're on to that degree, Art, you're going to know whether or not you're being set up. In, in fact, over over 21 years, I've had at least seven or eight occasions when people have given me targets that were set up, a tar, you know, set up targets or or where no target actually existed. Huh. I've not been fooled any of those times yet. You mean where people intentionally gave you totally baloney information as a test? Right. Uh, I, I can give you an example. Um, the, the most difficult target I ever worked was. Uh, I was given the picture, uh, I was given a black and white photograph of a room, and they essentially said there's something in this room we're very interested in, and describe it. And I kept getting uh, sort of a picture of a Y, you know, four, uh, three lines intersecting in the shape of a Y. And I, yes. I worked on that for probably two days and finally realized that it was uh, the inside and outside corner or perception of the corner of the inside and outside of an empty box. And I said, uh, <laughs> I said, there is no target. It's an empty box. And that, in fact, was true. And it was true. Yes. That must curl the hair of researchers to have something like that happen. I mean, it really would curl my hair. Well, it, it, it's almost as good as doing an actual target. <laughs> where it's impossible to know what the target is, and you produce detail on it, and uh, it defies probability. Um, if uh, remote viewing in, in any area had a 30 or 40% success rate, um, I personally, and I, I, I know we're going to go around on this, but I, I don't for one second think the government has actually stopped doing it. Now, most remote viewers that I've talked to, uh, right across the board, have uniformly insisted the program is over. That's correct. You, you, you join that crowd, I take yes, it. Yes, I do. How can that be? Well, it, it has a lot to do with politics, mostly. Um, if, in order for it to exist within the government, or to be uh, somehow franchised by the government, someone has to take responsibility for it. And no one that works 38 years of their life to get to a position of authority that they may hold is going to risk that career. Uh, they'll, they'll want someone else to do that. Uh, they may want to task remote viewers, but they just quite frankly don't want to hold the, uh, the ball of responsibility. 
it's uh, devastating to a career politically. Uh, but with a documented success rate, um, let, let me ask you this. Do you think the Russians are still doing this? Well, I, I know they are. You know they are. All right, yeah. and so there you are. Um, regardless what people say about the Cold War, mm -hmm. things are as unstable as they have ever been, probably the most unstable in Russia now, scarier than uh, at many times during, most times during the Cold War, uh, right now. And um, anything could happen over there, and they're doing it, and we're not. Um, I, I agree things are a lot scarier. Um, a lot of the controls that existed in the Cold War don't exist any longer. Yeah. Um, as far as the the Russians doing remote viewing uh, research and continuing with it, uh, they, like many other countries overseas, it's it's sort of psychic functioning as sort of part of their culture. They uh, not only believe that it's real, uh, but, you know, everybody from Aunt Millie to Grandma, whatever, uh, have visions, and, and it's part of their natural culture. So, in other words, uh, political, uh, the kind of political pressure there is here is um, non-existent over there with regard to this kind of program. Correct. It's essentially non-existent. Uh, the kind of political pressure they put up with over there is um, to produce probably consistency in the results or to produce uh, high enough level results that it can be used uh, effectively or pragmatically in some way. Are there very good uh, Russian remote viewers? I, I suspect there are. Um, the the kind of the sciences lab it has uh, um, some connection with uh, some of those researchers, some of the prime researchers in the remote viewing arena, and... Uh, some of their remote viewers' uh, material has been has been seen, and it, it appears to have at least the same quality as some of the viewing that was done uh, by some of the American remote viewers. <laughs> well, uh, if it's got that success level, and we're not doing it and they are, that really scares me. That really scares me, and it should scare everybody, because I've been hearing a lot of not good things about the Russians uh, lately. Have you? Do you have any remote viewing information with regard to our future relationship with Russia? Uh, not well. Yes and no. Um, it, a lot of it. A lot of what I would say would probably have to be called conjecture based on remote viewing. Uh -huh. But in in my own my own sense of things. I would say that the, the Russian people have passed the point of no return in, in terms of their condition and, and where they're going and, and changes and whatnot. I think that what we're looking at in their disarray is we're seeing what naturally takes many, many years to change. I mean, they're going from a totalitarian, rather ignorant uh, and oppressive government to, to one of, uh, you know, election by free vote in more of a capitalistic kind of economy. So I suspect they're going to go through a lot of turmoil, and we're going to go through it with them. And I think it's a good idea that we do, because we're the ones that can guarantee that they stay on that road. Uh -huh. So we should do our best, but you have no specific information about any future clash with the Russians. I, I don't... If there's a clash... Uh, if there's a clash, it probably is going to be Russian against Russian. Uh, 
I suspect, uh, not so much involving us in any way. Uh, what about the use of nuclear devices? I'm sure this would be a, a hot topic with uh, uh, certainly the government and uh, with the American people in general it is. Uh, will there be another use in anger of a nuclear device? Oh, I, I think that's inevitable. That's, that's on the horizon. I think it'll happen probably in our lifetime. Uh, it'll probably be a tactical nuclear weapon. Uh, small yield, perhaps a quarter of a megaton. Uh, it'll probably be targeted against a specific city. I, I think, however, that when we're when we're sort of sitting and thinking about, my God, would this be one of our cities? Yes. One of the things we have to to uh, take into consideration is the very distinct possibility that it could be. Um, it could be actually used by someone else on a third world nation. Um, the situation has reached a point of criticality where within the third world there are probably three or four major factions that are vying for power and uh, a nuclear, a tactical nuclear weapon detonated on, on the borders of say uh, Afghanistan and Iran would be uh, tantamount to starting the Third World War within the Third World, and I'm more afraid of that happening than I am having a tactical nuke show up in the continental United States. Yeah, well, when, as I listen to you, I'm trying to delineate between what you are conjecturing uh, based on current events and what you may know based on what you have remote viewed, or, uh, or can we... Uh, Nail that down. In other words, you have seen uh, through remote viewing the use of a nuclear device, or am I stepping into ground here that you can't comment on? Uh, we're kind of drifting into an area I'd rather not comment on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had that feeling. I'll try uh, and let, let me let me put it to you this way, Art. Um, one of the things I do know about remote viewing is that uh, while we have uh, a lot of superior technology for locating nuclear weapons-grade material, uh, once a terrorist organization gets an 8- to 15-hour head start with it, it's, it opens up the possibility of having to search huge areas uh, with that technology. Remote viewing can almost guarantee an 80% reduction in that search area. If you were to view a specific incident about to occur, you know, the, those hours were ticking off, Mm -hmm. What would you do with that information? Would you have a channel to get that information to the right people? Uh, that Yes, I, I always have a channel I can get the information to people that I think may be concerned or could use it, and I would do that if I felt that, uh, that I was right. Um, one of the problems is whether or not someone would take action based on it, and... I would never expect anyone to take any any kind of action based purely on remote viewing. Uh, what I would expect is that they might take the remote viewing information and use it as a targeting mechanism for other other techniques or other methodologies to. Well, let's put it this way: if you were to make the call to a contact you have and say, "Look, uh, such and such a group has got a nuclear device; uh, they're intent on using it. It's in transport right now." Would they take that from you seriously enough to apply other intelligence assets immediately uh, to check it out? I'm, I would think so. I think there are people that at least know know my know me by number. 
because yeah. <laughs> they see zero zero one on it, they're, they'll probably do something with Pay attention, it. yeah. Um, I can't, yeah, I mean, there's no way I could ever guarantee that. There's no way I'd get any feedback from that sort of thing. As I said, uh, I am intently, intently interested in the nature of time, and I would like to talk to you about that, and you're a perfect guy to talk to because you wrote a book called The Ultimate Time Machine, which, of course, is remote viewing, correct? Well, actually, the ultimate time machine is the human being. The human being? Y right. Yeah, true, uh, but uh, using that discipline, right? Well, it, actually, what I mean by that is, in in my con in the context in which I understand time, I don't I don't believe that there's a path past except that which we create. Uh, I think we live in a very immediate past of our own creation. There's no such thing as the present, and the future is is uh, purely a result of our actions today. So, in effect, we as the ultimate time machine are creating this illusion of time and living within it. Uh huh. All right, uh, we'll pick up on the whole question of time when we come back, top of the hour, so soon. And, yes, we will open phones for you to talk to Joe. Joe McGonigal, uh, remote viewer 001, is my guest. He's a heavyweight. If, you want, if you're curious about remote viewing, don't touch that dial. <laughs> Coast AM with Art Bell. From east of the Rockies, call Art at 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, at 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers may reach Art at area code 702-727-1222. And you may fax Art at area code 702-727-8499. Please limit your faxes to one or two pages. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Now again, here's Art. Good morning. Uh, it's a wild night, folks. Our number one, Peter Davenport at the UFO Reporting Center in Seattle. And I'm getting absolutely blitzed with calls. We're getting sightings all over the continental United States. Uh, in some specific areas, here's just one of many. Please stop faxing me. Stop faxing me. I know it's going on everywhere. Dear Art, tonight at about 9 o'clock p.m. in Eugene, Oregon, while walking home, we saw, this is Adam, Joe, Mike, and Abram together, a brilliant greenish uh, shade of light streak through the sky, traveling as fast as a shooting star. It was immensely larger than any shooting star we've ever encountered. We appreciate your time. like to give your West of the Rockies phone number out more often while well, I'll try. Um, we're going to get a very quick update from Peter Davenport in Seattle. It's a wild night out there, folks. And then back to Joe McGonagall. Uh, uh, Peter, what's going on? Yeah, we're, we've been getting as many calls as you've been getting, apparently, Art. Uh, we, since I was last on the air just an hour ago, we have, we've received probably two dozen calls some of them are really interesting. Uh, just got a call from a trucker. I think he called from Winslow, Arizona. They were traveling to the east on I-40, 
saw some very peculiar flashing lights off to their left. I presume that means off to the north where they were on the highway. But intriguingly, we took a call from a very serious-minded sounding uh, woman down in Kerrville, Texas. Apparently, she saw something that is reminiscent of what was Dallas this evening. Uh, what they saw in Dallas? Yeah. And uh, we also took a report from a gentleman down in Oregon who's a green ball of light as well. You're, so, getting, you're getting calls right now. Yeah, I failed to block out the, uh, the any, call any, waiting. Do you have any, any sense yet uh, from the calls you've taken of how massive this is? No, it, it's hard to say because we don't know how far away it was yet. That underscores the value of our getting written reports with maps if people will send us a, an official roadmap, photocopy of a roadmap, on which they indicate, one, where they were standing at the time of their sighting, number two, a straight line pointing in the direction they estimate they were looking. When we get those maps, we can then estimate where the object was. It could have been a mile away from them. It could have been a 100 miles away from them. Well, you've got a lot of reports to do and a lot of correlating to do. We sure do. But one thing's for sure, something's going on tonight. Yeah. That, that certainly appears to be the case from our vantage point. And it is, it's not just tonight. From my perspective, Art, it appears to be a continuation of what's been going on for the last 10 days or two weeks approximately. Uh, daytime sightings. Of course, I played the tape from Vancouver today, 2 o'clock today. The sighting over Westboro, Massachusetts. Uh, we've been getting sightings all day, reported to us all day long. Of course, we have yet to receive the written reports on these. The written report can change a lot of things. But it is clear that there are a lot of strange events that are being seen allegedly by people and reported to us. All right. Well, um, one more time with your reporting number, please. And then yes. we... Our telephone number in Seattle is area code 206-722-3000. Although we're about to shut down for the night, I've been working all day and all night, and I'm going to take a break. Uh, the best way for people to send us a brief one-paragraph description of what they saw is on the Internet, and my email address is simply director at ufocenter.com, or they can send a report over our standardized report on our website, and that's www.ufocenter.com. Thank you, Peter, and we'll talk to you tomorrow night and get an assessment of all this. Thanks a lot, Art. Take care. That's uh, Peter Davenport at the UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, and as I say, it's a hot night. There's a lot going on out there. So, if you're so inclined, keep your eyes peeled. Um, all right. Listen, we're about to go back to Joe McGonagall. Uh, very quickly, though, uh, an announcement. It is my understanding, and um, uh, it is my great pleasure to announce that uh, KABC in Los Angeles, beginning tomorrow night, is going to carry the program in its entirety, beginning at 10 o'clock, at night. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think that I am. Yeah, again, it's my understanding that uh, KABC in Los Angeles has made the decision to begin carrying the program at its inception at 10 p.m. Pacific time starting tomorrow night. I know that affects a lot of people in uh, Los Angeles. Back now to Joe McGonagall. Joe is the nation's first military remote viewer. He still can't talk about most of what he did for the military. Um, uh, in fact, 99.9% he can't talk about, but uh, we can talk generally about remote viewing. And he wrote a book called The Ultimate Time Machine. 
And, Joe, it is your view that time, uh, as in uh, going into the future, for example, you could remote view an event and then with free will change that event, in effect changing the future, correct? Well, actually, in that simple phrase that you just said, there's probably about five things that I could say. Go ahead and say them. Okay. Um, one of the difficulties about remote viewing the future, or one of the glitches in remote viewing the future, can best be demonstrated by by example. Uh, suppose, as an example, that we were living in the year 1850, and we actually remote viewed a, a pump laser in operation in Silicon Valley in 1975. You could have a perfect, 100% correct remote viewing of that event, but you wouldn't understand it. In other words, the conceptualization or the, the concepts that drive pump lasers don't exist yet. So going out into the future, just a few years in some cases, depending on the target, can present us with, uh, you know, un, unsoluble problems in terms of determining what it is we're seeing. Hmm. Having, having said that, um, when you remote view the future, if you see an event A, as an example, and you record that, uh, the fact that A doesn't happen just simply means that you were wrong. In other words, uh, you can have all the conjecture you like about whether or not our actions between that remote viewing and the event actually occurring somehow changed that event, but that's all hypothetical. In reality, we can only state what we experience, and that is we did not experience A, so it in fact was a bad remote viewing or an incorrect remote viewing, um, you say. I, I do see, uh, it's my understanding from having talked to other remote viewers that very large events um, are more easily viewed. For example, uh, if your target was uh, a certain individual, if they were about to die in a car crash or be hit by an 18-wheeler, something uh, very, very eventful and uh, a traumatic, uh, if not fatal, that would stand out and be more easily remote viewed than lesser events. Well, that's partially right. Uh, based on, based purely on a uh, sort of an objective observation, one would would naturally say that. In all probability, from a scientific standpoint, what's probably occurring is even a little bit more complex. Uh, remote viewing uh, targets that have a higher entropy than other targets generally produce more information and more accurate information. Uh, what that means is that lower entropy targets, which are generally targets that don't have much happening within them, uh, usually uh, do not produce as much information or as much accurate information. So it, it really doesn't have anything to do with the significance of the event, but it has more to do with its content from an entropy standpoint. Hmm. Um, if you can change an outcome that has been viewed in the future, then an obvious question is with regard to the past. Uh, you can only view the past, or can you affect? Is there any way to actually affect the past? Well, I personally think that every, every remote viewing of the past affects the past. And oh, the really? Re the reason I say that is because... Um, as I said earlier, I think the past is purely a creation of the specific ge sort of geopolitical, <laughs> theological scenario in which we happen to be living. 
In other words, uh, what we believe today about the past is different from what we believed in 1890. So by remote viewing the past and making comments on it, we are adding information or belief structure to what is already known or believed to be known, and that has to modify the, the view in terms of uh, how people think or feel about the past, depending on how much they believe in the remote viewing, of course. Okay. Um, a straight-on hard question. Remote viewing is one thing. There are people who talk about remote influencing, which is quite another animal. Mm -hmm. Is remote influencing possible? Uh, yeah, it is. It, it is if it's demonstrated within certain parameters. Um, generally speaking, where you where you where you see or observe remote influencing is where the 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 target individuals or the individuals involved as the target uh, generally have uh, agreed by inference to being influenced. In other words, if you have someone that you bring into an experiment, you say you're going to remote influence them in some way by virtue of the fact that they've agreed to participate in the experiment. They've given uh, sort of an agreement or compliance to being influenced. Uh, you, I think you'll see influence occur then. But in cases where someone does not give that sort of tacit approval, uh, I, I have never seen uh, remote influencing actually taking place. All right. I'm going to really take you out on a limb now and explain to you something I've done and at least get your comments on it. I'm, I'm really thoughtful on what I have done. Um, I decided to play a couple of years ago and to experiment. Uh, actually, 95 I began. And... I said, look, uh, if there are really these UFOs, and if they are from elsewhere, or whatever they are, let's try a mass concentration uh, to merely have these craft show themselves over a large American city. And I had millions of people going into deep concentration to get that done. Two weeks later, the lights over Phoenix occurred. Then we tried it a second time, and there were massive sightings, within a couple of days over Las Vegas. Then, uh, more recently, in the last uh, year, I have done three separate experiments to attempt to control the weather, each one of them successful. Uh, one time in Florida to bring rains to put out uh, fires. Within hours, clouds formed with no forecast for them, and it rained like hell. Um, Another time in Texas, um, where they desperately needed rain, and we tried it, and uh, by God, they got rain in the exact area we asked for. And the third time in Alberta, um, in, in a province of Canada, where they were having fires, and again, we produced rain. At that point, I stopped, and I began to sort of scare myself, and... And I said to my audience, look, um, it would appear that something real is happening here, but I'm concerned about the consequences of experimenting in these areas. For example, people urged me to try to have mass concentrations to, um, to um, deter a hurricane from hitting the coast. Well, that scared me. I imagined all kinds of terrible possibilities like, 
somehow managing to hold a hurricane over water and away from land long enough to build from a Category 2 to 5, and then having it slam into land. In other words, it seems like what I was doing, uh, and I wasn't doing it, it was the millions of people, I was just sort of an orchestra director here, uh, was working. And and it, it sort of freaked me out. And, and so I have not yet done another experiment, but I've been very thoughtful about it. What do you think about millions of minds in intense concentration over events of that sort? Well, first... First, I need to say that there's a very real possibility that something's going on there, that you're that you are having that kind of influence. Yeah. Uh, but then, secondarily, I'd have to say that there's another response that's possible, uh, in that you're taking sort of the key role in orchestrating when millions of people, millions of minds, will be concentrating on a specific thing. Right. You you may in fact be psychically picking the precise time and moment in time-space to observe the result. Um, there's a very good example of this uh, in a remote influencing experiment that was done by the Russians that I could, you know, I could give as an example if you want to hear it. I do want to hear it. Do, are you aware that the Russians um, contacted uh, Malaysia and made an offer to create a cyclone? Um, and they would do it for free if the Malaysians gave their... You remember when the terrible fires were, were going mm -hmm. on? Right, I remember that. They, they made... It, it was in, uh, going on, um, being reported by the Associated Press, the Russians actually said, we have, they said, the technology to create a cyclone, would you like us to do it? And I'm, I'm still not over that uh, piece of news. Well, there's some, there's some interesting technology that's been developed just very recently with regard to uh, observing certain certain patterns and in, in, as an example the effects of the contrails of jets and how many days later and many thousands of miles away they actually create storms that's correct um, so it may be that there are scientists that are very long very far along that track and that might have something to do with it um, it might also be that it would have been nice to have the opportunity to predict a cyclone from Malaysia and get paid a lot of money you know, <laughs> for being correct psychically. Well, actually, they offered uh, to do it once for free, and then there would be charges for any uh, future production. Sure. And, and I guess it didn't go anywhere, but the, the implication was that they could do this with satellite technology that was already in place. <laughs> That's interesting. I, you yeah. know, I would have liked to see Malaysia take them up on it. That would have been fun to see. Um, yeah, me too. So so you don't then toss out the idea that millions of minds in, in concentration over events of this sort can produce events of this sort as one possibility, the other being that I have sort of psychically uh, simply um, read something that's going to occur. R right. I, you know, I would, I would give each equal weight simply because I don't know if either's ever been proven. Um, both, both of course, hold the same possibility. Uh, one of the things that's very difficult about proving this sort of thing is that I'm absolutely convinced and have been for many years that our expectancy and outcome are, are what we intend to have happen uh, very much has to do with what actually does occur. What we can't determine is whether or not it occurs that way because we've influenced events in some way that cause it, 
or whether or not we've just in some, some uh, predetermined way have selected the appropriate place to observe the event. Do you, do you give uh, any more weight to either possibility? No, I don't. Not at the moment. I I just don't have enough data, and I don't think anyone does to to weigh one possibility over the other. Uh, you have even, I know, done experiments with telekinesis. Uh, PK, yeah, psychokinesis. PK, psychokinesis. Uh, right. And that is the ability to move or in some, in, in some way affect uh, an object or a beam of light or whatever it is you choose uh, with your mind. Right. Is, exactly. is that real? Uh, there, in, in terms of affecting uh, solid objects, um, I, I have been successful in, in being a, a surgical steel bar that was sealed in a glass tube. What? You did this under controlled? Uh... Well, it wasn't controlled in the, to the extent that I had access to the tube alone, but it was controlled to the extent that it was in a sealed glass tube. You bent a steel bar? Well, it was a surgical steel a implement. Surgeon. Yeah, actually. right. All right. They, they normally don't bend. They usually shatter under pressure. Um, Joe, hold on. Uh, we'll obviously pick up on that when we get back. Off into a whole different world, huh, folks? What a night. I'm Art Bell. This, this is Coast to Coast AM. Talk with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye. From east of the Rockies, dial 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers may reach Art at area code 702-727-1222. And you may call Art on the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. To reach Art from outside the U.S., first dial your access number to the USA, then 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM, from the Kingdom of Nye, with Art Bell. The sounds of silence, the sounds of thought. Good morning, everybody. Joe McGonagall is my guest. You ought to know who he is, the first, our nation's first Remote viewer, number 001 for the government, Project Stargate. A man who just said that in a controlled experiment, he bent a metal surgical instrument inside a glass jar. And now, back to the best of Art Bell. All right, we are about to, uh, in a moment, open the line. So if you have any questions for our nation's first remote viewer, Joe McGonagall, now is a good time to call. You know what the numbers are. And uh, I'm going to turn him over to you in a moment. But, Joe, um, where did you do this? Um, uh, you, you bent a surgical instrument inside a glass jar. This was an experiment done where? Under what conditions? Well, actually, as I 
as I said earlier, and I, I probably wasn't clear enough about it, it it unfortunately was not under control condition because I was allowed access to this glass tube with uh, without someone in the room with me. So that negates any any kind of controls. You know, I could have switched glass tubes or something, but in reality, it was it was like a test tube, uh, glass test tube that had been melted shut on both ends, and contained within it was a uh, a round, um, probably two centimeter thick surgical piece of steel, about seven inches long. And over a period of about eight months, I was able to put about I don't know about a three and a half centimeter bend <laughs> in the center of it. Um, one of the difficulties when you start dealing with metals in PK is it's very unless you unless you're you're absolutely sure about the metal that's being targeted, uh, it's difficult to say whether or not it would not have done that on its own in any event. On its so, own? On its own? In a yes. sealed in a sealed glass jar? Uh, yes, that's that's very possible. Uh, there could be uh, some metallurgical. Uh, defect within the metal itself uh, hmm. when it's uh, when it's subjected to certain changes in temperature as an example it could have a reaction where it it seeks to uh, change shape or go back to an original shape uh, particularly with metals that have been stamped or die die created in in machines uh, that's why spoons are so controversial is that what you think happened uh, I think it's a little of both actually um, it's a, it's a little difficult to say. Uh, I I have a nickel alloy serving spoon that's that's uh, rolled up into a tight little knot, and of course that that was very difficult to do. But when we attempted to unroll it, it of course shattered. So rolling it into a tight knot in the first place was uh, sort of defied the laws of nickel alloy. Um, Boy, I'll say. And and when you tried to undo what you had done, right, it shattered. It shattered. Uh, we tried to unwind Holy it by smoke. force. I I would add. So um, obviously, if it was going to shatter, it would have shattered if I had rolled it by force. But um, in this case, it just rolled up like a sheet of paper. It was very easy to do. And How do uh, people who observe this kind of thing happen? Um, keep full touch with reality after they've seen it happen. I mean, I'd be hey, I'm out of here. Well, Joe, you're a scary guy. The, the, usual, the usual reaction is uh, people go into sort of a stunned silence, yeah, and then um, they go away, and by the next morning they've convinced themselves that it was a freak accident, and by that afternoon uh, they never observed it. Uh, it's either integrated into their reality or deny it altogether. And most people have a tendency to deny that they've seen those, those things occur. Um, here's a, uh, just a couple of faxes, and we'll go to the phones. Uh, Dear Art, in Joe's first book, entitled Mind Trek, he drew, as well as described, his impressions of the Cydonia region of Mars. Richard Hoagland sits straight up. Would you please ask him to describe the impressions of the Cydonia region of Mars as well as his impressions of its former inhabitants? Well, well, actually, within the book, I, I drew a picture of what I think were the former inhabitants, and they are very humanoid-like, and they probably stood about 12 feet. Um, I have a, uh, a personal conviction that the, the people who actually built 
the ruins that exist, which I believe exist in the Sidonia region, uh, probably existed a million years ago, and in in some way might even be our ancestors. In other words, there's a very real possibility that we're aliens to the planet we live on. We are Martians. Right, essentially. Actually, I don't think they were originally from Mars. I think they came from another area, and the the ruins that now exist there were actual actually uh, uh, constructed in a rather hurriedly fashion to protect them against the the sort of ravaging storms and things that covered the face of Mars back then. Which literally ended up stripping its atmosphere and uh, water and so forth. Right, and and perhaps part of that that uh, that group were safely transported to Earth at some point, and the rest, uh, of course, didn't make it. You seem like a, a really careful, well-grounded person, uh, as I ask you various questions, offering other, uh, more mundane possibilities for what otherwise seems to be a psychic event, and yet you seem pretty sure about this, about Cydonia, about the inhabitants. Well, well, and, of course, I'm saying that that's my personal conviction, which doesn't make it right. Um, I also say in, in Mind Trek where I I give the actual uh, descriptions and transcripts and whatnot taken from the the session that uh, is, for all intents and purposes, I'm creating science fiction until someone actually goes and lands at Sidonia and walks in those ruins. It, mm-hmm. It's an impossibility to say whether it's right or wrong. All right, somebody uh, writes, I'm on the East Coast. It's going on 3 o'clock in the morning here, and I've got to be to work by 8. It's killing me. <laughs> Would you ask Joe, please, for any predictions or knowledge he has for the new millennium? I have talked to some remote viewers, uh, Joe, who say there's almost a block at some point in the future as they try to look past some point. Uh my my book, The Ultimate Time Machine, I actually talk about uh, mostly about the next 75 years. There's uh, approximately 160 very specific predictions uh, with regard to date and what I believe is actually going to happen. Oh, could you give us a few of those? Uh, well, uh, it's a little difficult to do without the manuscript in front of me, but, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the these light, phenomena perhaps uh, uh, being a preliminary for a geological occurrence. The things being seen all over the country tonight, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm almost convinced that within within our lifetime we're going to see a major eruption uh, occur somewhere on the North American continent. And uh, I'm sort of torn between two locations, one being uh, the Mount Shasta area mm-hmm. and the other being uh, Mexico City. And uh, one of my predictions is that uh, if it does occur in the Mexico City area, it it will be you know quite devastating because of the the intensity of the population in that area. Um, I I suspect that the one that you and I will see will probably be in the Mount Shasta area, and that sometime within the next hundred years, the one in Mexico City will occur. Boy, um, I'm I'm a lot more specific about the dates in the book, but I just can't recall them from memory. All right. Uh, and this, uh, Art, please ask Joe if a specific item like a stock price can actually be viewed for future performance, and obviously if so, then why doesn't the group simply make a few choice picks 
and fund uh, any amount of research you would like to do in that particular fashion? Well, there's a lot of ways of answering that. Um, you, you can do specific stocks. Um, you can use a form of remote viewing called associative remote viewing for binary questions like yes and no or, or constructive, destructive, that sort of thing. And, of course, target a stock as to whether or not you should invest, not invest, or just leave it alone. And um, I would say to the, the listener that um, I don't specifically ask them about their business, so I don't generally answer in response to whether or not I'm doing stocks. Um, oh, gee, a lot to read between the lines there. Right, exactly. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I wouldn't assume that a viewer doesn't make money doing that sort of thing. I, I in particular, I personally don't have a great deal of an interest in the stock market because I believe it's a form of gambling and that for everyone who makes uh, $10 in the start mar- stock market, 10 people have to have lost a dollar, essentially. Well, it so, is gambling. Yeah, it, it, is, it, it is. It really is gambling. Right. Uh, and, and they're presently, you know, trying to squash Internet gambling. You can go on the Internet now, and you can play roulette and uh, poker and 21, whatever you want, offshore uh, operations, and they're getting ready to ban that. And I was thinking the other day, if they're going to ban that, they ought to... They probably ought to ban uh, internet stock purchasing. Well, there, there's a lot of people, Art, that are essentially giving up their homes and cars, uh, playing the long shot on the on the uh, the self-invested uh, stock market over the internet, and they're they're habituated to it because they have a gambling condition, and I think that that is uh, uh, that's unconscionable, personally, but. Well, you know, in our society, um, uh, we're capitalists, and that's, I suppose, um, what it's all about, they say. But how they delineate that from real gambling, I mean, if you're going to play arbitrage, for example, that's, to me, just gambling. Right, exactly. And and what is the difference, and how come nobody ever talks about that fact? Just, well, just because the, that's what we are? Well, I think part of the... Part of the problem right now, the major problem in Japan, goes back to their their addiction with gambling. Um, in their stock market, it wasn't it wasn't good enough to sell papers on commodities for the future. They were selling paper on the paper, and then papers on those papers, huh. so that they were essentially gambling three layers deep on commodities that fail. Well, that is more or less how we got in trouble with the Great Depression. Uh, do you have any specific economic um, information that would be of general interest to people? In other words, do you see our economy remaining robust? Is there a deep valley problem uh, ahead, uh, some sort of uh, depression? Do you see any deep problems in our economy? I, I don't see any kind of a depression like occurred in 1929. But I, I do see a re, uh, declining market. I see a market that's probably going to go through at least four major corrections over the next five years. And, uh, of course, people make money during that period as well as they make it when it's rising. Sure. Um, it's just that along with that comes uh, sort of a negative confidence in the economy. And uh, I, so I think we will go through a period where, where people are shaken by it and disturbed by it. But... It's not going to be anything like the 29 crash. All right. Um, 
Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Joe McGonagall and Art Bell. Hi, where are you? Hello? I'm in Nashville. Nashville. Okay, you're going to have to speak up good and loud, hon. Get close to the phone and yell at us. Okay, is that better? Much better. Okay. Um, I had a question. Um, I heard the previous program with Ed Dames. Yes. Um, and, and there was a question raised about a connection between remote viewing and Scientology. Oh, um, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, and I have it on pretty good authority that that's... That's good information. Um, that Ingo Swan and Pat Price were indeed high-level Scientologists. Oh, I, listen, let's ask. Um, uh, exactly right. Uh, there was a, a, a question um, in a previous program about remote viewing and a connection with Scientology. Are you aware of any? Uh, per- personally, um, I can only I can only attest to the fact that I believe that uh, both Pat Price and Ingo Swan and perhaps uh, another one or two individuals within the, the SRI lab at the time were, in fact, Scientologists as well. I do know that uh, some yeah. of them, uh, you know, declined to remain members because they didn't like it or didn't, didn't find any value to it. Uh, I would also have to say that I've known uh, Buddhists who are also remote viewers, and so, you know. So th- so there is no more specific connection between Scientology and remote viewing. That, no. That's what people seem to believe, and I guess they've drawn that conclusion based on the fact that a couple were Scientologists, and that's well, all. Well, in fact, you know, you, you, could, you could really stretch and say that there's some indication that perhaps some of the techniques in Scientology might have showed up in some of the thinking of some of those individuals, but again, like I said, um, my my thinking is heavily laden with my military background. So, you know, we are what we consume or what we do. So, um, I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, I don't see, any, in other words, I don't see any kind of conspiracy or anything behind the scenes or under the under the table. If one if one mind can be said to have. Um, so much power to either perceive events or affect events, is it proper then to conclude that many minds organized together to affect an event uh, have a greater effect? Uh, I, I would say so, but, but again, I would have to caution against assuming that it's the, the sort of mental en- energy that's come together or the focus that's come together to cause that. You have to also assume at the same time that uh, a million people with thinking that something should be done are in fact going to be taking action and doing things within their life structure that is that will promulgate that. In other words, will mm. will so, sort of bring energy to that. So I'm not so sure if it's the mental energy or the actual unconscious actions that we take as a result of our convictions that might eventually bring that fruition. It's probably a little bit of both. All right. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Joe McGonagall and Art Bell. Hi. Good morning, Art. This is Tim from uh, KOGO country. In San Diego. Hi, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I would like to ask Joe, would it be possible to get the masses of the minds together to create an experiment to prove levity is real? Levity as in jocular? As in levity. You know, mind over matter. Oh, oh, oh I see. Uh, as in the experiment, uh, yes, uh, that he talked about earlier. Yes. Uh, 
I, you know, I would like to see that happen. Um, I'm not. One of the difficulties in getting millions of minds together to focus on something is getting them to all agree essentially on an absolute intent that's a, you know that's common common among all those minds. See, this is what we did with these weather experiments and the others. And frankly, Joe, it honestly scared me, and I began to contemplate consequences that I couldn't anticipate for doing something like that, and it stopped me, and I'm still stopped. Well. Let me let me suggest another alternative to you, Art. Um, I can understand where that fear would come into play, but isn't it a worse a worst case scenario to live your life in a world that where you know sort of coordinated action can make changes, and where we choose to ignore that possibility and just sort of go along for the ride? Um, absolutely. So yes, uh, you're absolutely correct, but. Um, I, I still think there is a, should be a cautionary note here that it might have consequences that uh, you wouldn't expect that, that would be negative. And um, I just would like to be more sure of what I'm doing before I proceed. And I'm not sure how I get to that point where I'm, I'm sure enough to proceed. Well, it, you can put it in a context that's more positive. Uh, for instance, if, if you're proposing to change weather to water crops, then the in, the intent there is a positive and constructive one, and I can't imagine that weather would occur that would create damage or destructive results. In other words, it's all part of the same intent. Well, right. Um, hold on, Joe. We're at the uh, top of the hour. It, it, yeah, it's all part of the same intent, but inevitably then there are destructive weather things that have occurred in areas that we've concentrated on, and believe me... We get uh, email and we get letters saying, look what you did. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Kingdom of Nye from outside the U.S. First, dial your access number to the USA. Then, 800-893-0903. If you're a first-time caller, call Art at 702-727-1222. From east of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, Call Art at 1-800-618-8255 or call Art on the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye. It is, and Joe McGonagall is here. He's our nation's first remote viewer, uh, 001 in the military. He's uh, definitely a heavyweight. If you have questions about remote viewing... Or what Joe has remote viewed, then we are available for you. And the lines, of course, are totally jammed. So all I can say is, yeah, I almost stepped on that. I keep trying to get through. Anyway, more of this directly ahead. 
Uh, we'll be right back, and I've got several questions about shows we've done in the last couple days. You know, the ones that talked about the Russian weapons. I wonder if that's something you can comment on. We'll find out in a moment. Uh, back to Joe McGonagall. You holding up okay, Joe? Oh, yeah. All right, good. Um, I had the highest-ranking Soviet defector uh, to ever come out of uh, the Soviet Union on my show a week or so ago. And then I had a lieutenant colonel on the other evening, and both of these gentlemen said that the Russians are and for a long time have been experimenting with, in fact, causing earthquakes. Is this an area that you cannot comment on? Um, I don't know a lot about that area, quite frankly. Um, there, I can I can understand where they might be saying that, but some of the reasons why they might be saying that, <laughs> I'm not sure would imply a weapon system of any kind. Uh huh. Um, by the way, folks, if you want to read more about Joe, and uh, I'm just looking at one little si a part of his website right now. We've got it linked. Under remote viewing, you will find the definition of remote viewing, history with Stargate, examples of remote viewing, frequently asked questions, research and development, remote viewing applications, books, journals, publications, related websites, publicity and media, remote viewing services. Now, that's just one little section of your website. So you just got this up. It's pretty com comprehensive, eh? Yeah, uh, there's so still some areas that are under construction, but there, the area on examples, there are some uh, simulated intelligence examples there that are very good. And, of course, there's information on my books and uh, my personal bio and business bio and that sort of thing. Uh, are there really things that you know uh, that if you were to tell, you'd end up in jail? Well, simply because I, I signed agreements and I gave my word that there were certain things I wouldn't disclose, I won't. Uh, there are a lot of things that uh, are very sensitive, and part of their sensitivity deals with our ability to know them. And so just exposing them would, uh, would you know, expose the ability. ability to collect information there. Yeah, but see, yeah. But see the, the implication there is, Joe, clearly the implication is that, that it's, still, it's still going on. Well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> That's what um, it sounds like to me. Well, you, you know, if, if you're successful at doing something in defense of the nation, you certainly don't want anyone to know that you're having that degree of success. If... Um, your successes in the past were dependent upon uh, additional methodologies that were used. You don't want to show that connection. Um, one of the things I, I do want to say are uh, I, d I don't want to leave the listeners with the the opinion that you know I was the only remote viewer. Oh no! I, I want to say that within the the time period of the project, there were probably a little over two dozen viewers, and and there were many viewers as uh, equally as good as I ever was, and. Or am, and oh, actually, I'm glad you brought this up. Of and, course there uh, are. I mean, I've, I've interviewed many of them. That that project could not have existed based on just the efforts of a single individual in any case. And, right. Uh, it was uh, always a team effort, and everyone played an equal role in terms of their their degree of involvement and importance and their support. And many, many people essentially uh, 
laid their careers on the line and so as a result of that. And, and I think the listeners just need to know that. Having said all that, um, I've got a very serious question for you. I really, really love the subject of remote viewing, and I have therefore interviewed many remote viewers. There is a terrible, terrible schism it, in what once was a very tight community. There have been some real problems that have developed between people who were in that program since the ending, the official ending anyway, of that program. There's a lot of animosity. How come? Well, I, I think I think a lot of it is is not really generated between the the actual people involved. I think it's generated by uh, a lot of misconceptions by the media, uh, and a lot of what the media has put into print or, or said essentially has sensationalized some of the statements and taken them out of context that that people might have said. And as a result, there's a there's a lot of things that are believed. To be true that aren't. Um, as an example, there's there's a belief that at some point I made a statement that uh, remote viewing or uh, remote viewers uh, are not everyone can be a remote viewer, and not everyone is psychic, and that is exactly 180 degrees out of out of kilt from what I actually said. What I actually said was that there is evidence in the lab that every human being that's ever walked through our door display some capacity of being psychic. Gee, how does that one get turned around? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I think they people, a lot of people ask questions, but they never listen. And what they do listen to, they listen to within the context of how they would like to hear it sound in there. Why do I know that's true? So, um, I, you know, that's happened with me quite frequently, and I know that it's happened with others. And um, when you don't have direct contact with some of the people and you're not able to, you know, answer those questions directly, uh, a lot a lot gets uh, assumed, and it's really unfortunate. There were, in the military, very specific protocols. Some remote viewers have strayed from or modified those protocols. Um, in your view, is that a reasonable thing to be doing, or does it dilute uh, what accuracy was obtained with those very strict protocols? Well, uh, the way I'd like to answer that is that absolutely, if, if the, the protocols, which actually uh, lend the scientific truth or validity to remote viewing, if those are straight from, that absolutely does dilute whether or not it's remote viewing. Uh, however, having said that, uh, you have to understand that there are a whole lot of different methodologies that are being used that operate within the, that that protocol. Are there any that you're aware of that have been developed or modified that are superior in results to what was done in the military? I don't know of, uh, of any specific uh, any any specific methodology that's superior over another. I I do know that that some will probably be a little bit more consistent than others. Um, they all pretty much produce the same accuracy level uh, with uh, when you're using a, you know, a, a well-experienced or, or uh, well-selected uh, remote viewer. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're all pretty much the same. It's it's dependent upon the individual and and simply what what they like to do. Uh, everybody brings their own natural talent to it. 
and since everyone's psychic, uh, we have a tendency to, to go with what works for us. All right. Uh, first time caller line, you're on there with Joe McGonagall. Hi. Yes. Hi, Art. Calling from Seattle. Um, listening to you uh, on Como 1000. The big one up there, yes. Yes. Uh, Mr. McGonagall, I wanted to ask you, I read a book on the uh, about the Montauk Project. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yes, I am. Somewhat. Uh, yes. And I read uh, a section of it where they did experiments to affect weather changes. And also, uh, they did experiments on sound frequency to see how it affected people and animals. And also, um, in the book, it said they also did experiments in time travel. And the reason the Long Island location was closed down was due to an entity coming through during one of the time travel experiments that created havoc and they couldn't get rid of. So, um, <laughs> Really? Uh, that's quite a story. Joe, do you know anything about all that? Well... Uh, one of the things I like to do, Art, is when I read something, I like to check it out. And I, I read a number of things about the Montauk Project, and what was implied is that many of the things that were used or developed in those projects still exist in terms of towers and buildings and tunnels and all that sort of thing. So I, I actually personally went to Montauk and looked for those things, and none of them exist. Um, so I have a little trouble you know, buying some of the other things that were that were said as a result. Um, I think it's quite possible that uh, there have been experiments done with regard to sound and the effects of sound on people or animals. Um, there's there's some literature that supports that. I believe also that there is probably a considerable amount of research in, in stuff that was done with regard to the uh, earlier foundations of radar. Uh, towards the end of the uh, Second World War, mid, mid to end of the Second World War out of Montauk. But beyond that, I haven't found much evidence for anything else. Implication being that there was some at least nugget of truth to the Philadelphia experiment? Uh, you know, the Philadelphia experiment's a really interesting thing. It, it, in reality, what they actually did is they, they did build some very large degaussers in the dock areas there during the war because uh, metal ships riding through the water build up electrostatic charges and make them very vulnerable to electromagnetic mines. Right. And so they would degauss these ships. And we now know that um, certain kinds of electromagnetic uh, wave fronts hitting the temporal lobes of the brain create uh, a sense of uh, uh, having an entity standing next to you or, or some very bizarre uh, effects. And... I can conclude from that that probably a lot of the things that have been said about uh, the Philadelphia uh, experiment might be true in the minds of people who were degaussed. Um, it's also quite possible that in attempts to build something that would essentially wipe out a, uh, a radar system, they could conceivably have built a very large unshielded microwave tube on the deck of one of those ships and, uh -huh. and cooked a few people. I mean... You know, nothing's beyond, you know, the possibility. So I think out of that sort of collage of, of things, you could hypothesize a number of things, and some of that being the, you know, what's been written about the Philadelphia experiment. Exactly. Uh, Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Joe McGonagall. Hello. Hi, uh, this is Dan in Virginia. Hello. Yes, uh, Joe, have you had any... Uh contact with either spiritual entities or either ETs uh, during your remote viewing? Oh, very, very good question. Um, yeah. That, that is a good question, Art. Um, 
I, I personally have had a couple experiences where I had a sense that I was uh, either visited by or in the presence of some form of entity. Um, the difficulty is determining what exactly that is. Um, I, I'm not one to jump to a conclusion that it's alien simply because it doesn't look like me. Um, I try to hold an open mind in that regard, and so I suggest that it, it might be alien, but it might also be a uh, time traveler. It could also be a construct of my own mind in in some way. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it was or or where it came from, but I do know that there was a reason based on the information that was exchanged, there's a reason to believe that there's some validity to that entity. If, um, Joe, somebody were to remote view you, would you be aware of that fact? Uh, probably not. Uh, the, uh, and again, I, I go back to the, the 25 years of research that's been done in the lab. Uh, there's quite a bit of evidence that uh, in some cases, you can you can uh, you can display the ability to determine that something's been remote viewed at a specific time or place, mm. and that would include individuals. But that happens very spontaneously. Uh, the, the last person that you ever want to ask for any decision uh, with regard to remote viewing is the remote viewer. Uh, even while they're in the act of remote viewing, they're they're generally incapable of making uh, decisions that. Uh, that are going to be accurate, uh, especially the yes/no kind of kind of decision. Yeah. Um, all right. East of the Rockies, you're on air with Joe McGonagall. Hi. Good evening, Art. Uh, good evening, uh, Joe. It's an honor to speak with you. This is Eric in Austin, Texas, listening to you on KJFK uh, 98.9 FM. That's the way to do it. Thank you, um, Joe. Uh, with uh, regard to a miniature conversation that you and Art had earlier regarding the effects of weather and the uh, weather experiments that uh, Art has just completed, um, it would seem to me that uh, if you compare that to the surgical instrument, I mean, both would take a heck of a lot of physical or uh, or what would seem kind of sign compliant or compliant to the electromagnetic field, in or, uh, an incredible amount of energy in order to accomplish either one of those. Um, but yet you said it was uh, possible that, say, like for the weather experiments, that people could subconsciously or, or physically uh, uh, affect the weather. How would that be done? Uh, can you clarify that? Well, I even suggested that it was equally possible that I had, in effect, psychically viewed something that would occur mm -hmm. and uh, therefore announced that particular experiment. Um, I'd like to go back to that, that Russian experiment. All right. And sort of give that as an explanation for what I mean. Uh, the, the Russians did a very interesting experiment. They they took 24 mice and, and tattooed them with numbers, 1 through 24. Mm -hmm. And then they had a, a participant who was not going to be in their experiment select out which would be control mice and which 12 would be target mice. Mm -hmm. And they alone knew that. Mm -hmm. um, they kept the information, and, of course, they took the mice and put them in, all in a cage together, and then they had a psychic 3,000 kilometers away target them mm -hmm. to try to raise the... Uh, the aggression level in the targeted mice. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of six months, they kill all the mice and analyze the chemicals in their brain and were able to sort the 12 mice that were aggressive, uh, that were pre-selected as aggressive, into one column that was accurate. Mm -hmm. 
So are you uh, saying that that would be more of a, a telepathic uh, or even psychokinetic influence? Well, their, their assumption was that it was psychokinetic, but in reality it may have been that the person who made the selection of the two groups at the very beginning, knowing what the outcome needed to be, made the appropriate selection you're, up front. You're, you're a very, very careful man. Uh, hold on, Joe. We're at the bottom of the hour. We'll do another segment. Joe McGonigal is my guest. He's our nation's first remote viewer. There were others. All right, here we go again. Uh, once again, back to uh, Joe McGonigal. Joe, you've got you've got a, several books out. Uh, is there any that you would like to particularly plug right now? Uh, the the new book, of course, which uh, will probably be in bookstores the first week of December. Uh, the Ultimate Time Machine is the new one. Uh, Mind Trek, of course, is a good primer for remote viewing if people would really like to know something about how I, I integrated a lot of what I learned about remote viewing. You've had four major heart, heart attacks. That's correct, two open heart surgeries. Um, and you had a near-death experience as well. Was that during one of them? No, no, that that was back in 1970 while I was overseas. Um, describe it. In other words, did you actually clinically uh, cease? What what actually happened is uh, I started feeling badly. I ordered a before dinner drink at a guest house in Austria. Right. And I uh, took a few sips and started feeling very badly and. I excused myself from the restaurant so I wouldn't be ill in front of anyone. And uh, when I hit the door, I collapsed on the sidewalk and went into convulsions. Uh, I swallowed my tongue, and of course you can't breathe when that happens. And so I ceased breathing after about, uh, I guess, five to six minutes. My heart stopped, and I was delivered to the local hospital in Germany, DOA. DOA. Right. What happened to you during that time? Uh, it was a very classic near-death experience. Uh, I I watched everything from outside of my body. I watched them load me into a car and take me across the border to this hospital. And I watched them cut the clothing off my body in the emergency room and start sticking needles in me. And I became sort of bored by that. By then, I had figured out that I was dead or dying. And I started wondering what was going to happen next and found myself falling backwards through a tunnel. Um, at some point, I felt something warm on the back of my neck or what I perceived to be on the back of my neck. And I turned around to see what it was and was enveloped by a white light, which at the time I perceived to be, uh, perceived to be God. Um, I then actually did go over every event in my life up to that point and uh, was told that I couldn't die. I had to come back. I, of course, argued about that <laughs> and uh, had very little control over it. Uh, suddenly sat up in a bed. I was in the hospital, and I had been com comatose for some hours or days. And I began telling everybody in broken German and English about white lights and God and you can't die and that sort of thing. Uh, and I wound up in a rest home as a result. What kind of a reaction did you get? Uh, it was a very negative one. Uh, they put me in a rest, private rest home in Munich and did brain studies to determine uh, how much damage I had suffered uh, as a result of the lack of oxygen to my brain. Really? 
I immediately uh, started trying to act normal, and uh, they let me let me out after about ten days. You realized, I guess, if you didn't uh, let up, they'd probably uh, have you in a jacket in a quiet place with rubber walls. Right. It, b- back then, you know, this was like unheard of. Nobody ever discussed this sort of thing, and uh, I, they immediately thought that I had suffered irreparable brain damage. Is your fear of death gone? Uh, it went away that during that event, and I've not had it since. Well, you know, um, I'd love to experiment with that. <laughs> there are people, uh, Joe, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, who are doing uh, experiments. In fact, I'm waiting for the results now with possibly a dangerous drug, which I'm not going to mention. We call it Drug X. But um, two people with doctorates, who are using a specific drug to induce NDEs. Does that concept give you the willies? Actually, no. Um, Historically speaking, the Greeks were known to use some very exotic uh, poisons to take people to the level of an NDE. Uh Uh, It had a profound effect on some of their philosophies, as a matter of fact. Interesting answer. Back to the best of Art Bell. First time caller line, you're on the air with Joe McGonagall. Hi. Hi, this is uh, Dan. I love your show. Uh, Thank you. I Where did... are you? I'm in Canada. Canada, okay. I was actually uh, trained by one of the people that came out of uh, Joe's program about four years ago on remote viewing. Um, and Joe mentioned uh, something uh, a couple of years back that uh, I'd just like to ask him about, and that had to do with the, the Russians' uh, experiments. I'd heard Joe had a uh, bypass operation, at least one, probably, possibly more. Uh, they were actually trying to do what I would call more uh, remote influencing or uh, remote assassinations, like to try and stop people's hearts. And there were apparently people in the program that were having coronaries in, in mid-session. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, is that a true story? Uh, are there people who actually died uh, while having sessions? Actually, no. That, that's a myth. Um, there was, in fact, one individual who was not working at the time who had come by the office and was, in fact, drinking a cup of coffee and was, as a result of another job, under a great deal of stress. And uh, he did have a massive coronary and uh, subsequently died. Uh, but that was not in relationship in any way to any kind of a remote viewing. Um, you know, I think the proof's kind of in the pudding. I'm still here. Um, my my heart condition is pretty much genetic, and uh, I've you know I've survived so far. So if their targeting mechanisms you know are to induce heart attacks and death, they're not doing a very good job of it. There you are, caller. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so you don't consider there to be any inherent danger at all? Well, no, I, uh-huh. I don't want to be misconstrued. Um, there is an inherent danger, and I, and I think it comes from the, from the person themselves. If, if, as an example, um, you become involved in the paranormal or become involved in remote viewing, 
and you cannot integrate what you're experiencing into your belief structure. In other words, it runs counter your actual belief structure on how things work or, yeah. or, or your theologic background, as an example. What you will actually do is create an illness in order not to participate. Um, I've actually seen that happen with people where uh, they really did not want to alter their belief structure, and as a result, they made themselves sick. Now, if you pay attention, you quit and go away, and you get healthy again. If you don't pay attention, the degree of sickness increases until you do. And so you could kill yourself. You could essentially kill yourself, exactly. Um, I suspect that that's not just a predominant thing within the paranormal research area, but it's probably predominant throughout life. Um, people actually find themselves in jobs or situations that they're not comfortable in, and they become so diseased with it that they actually die. They result. decide to die. Exactly. There are many, many cases, of course, of um, people who, once their mate is gone, make a conscious, literally a conscious decision to die. And they Absolutely. Do. They Perfect do. Perfect example, Art. You Perfect know. example. Um, Wildcard Line, you're on there with Joe McGonagall. Hi. Howdy. Michael in California. Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, that great person, Nepente, I believe is what you might have been referring to. That was just a comment. And it seems perhaps that it's difficult to squeeze certain things into higher consciousness provoking uh, situations like psychedelics or or remote viewing where it can't be used negatively because that's a condition a condition of that dimension in which it, it, it works. Well, let's ask about that. Um, Joe, I like to be brutally honest with people, and I don't know that I believe that. In other words, remote viewing is a, a talent, uh, a natural ability, a developed ability, a sharpened ability, and I think, like most forces, that it, if I had to guess, I'd say it could be used for good or uh, what some might consider a, neg ne a negative uh, target. Uh, all, the, all the evidence uh, points to the fact that uh, whether you consider something good or evil has no effect whatsoever on the ability to remote view. So conceivably, someone who has a lot of intention or who is very destructive by nature can be as effective a remote viewer as someone who is not, who is more inclined to the positive or constructive. I, I think what's important to understand is that uh, remote viewing is a tool, just like eyesight or smell or taste or anything else, in that we all use our capabilities, our talents, or our tools in a either destructive or constructive way. And, and that's pretty much up to the individual. Yeah, that's an answer I can sure buy into. East of the Rockies, you're on there with Joe McGonigal. Hi. Uh, this, uh, yes, I'm calling from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, yes, sir. Yes, and I had uh, one question. Uh, in all <clears throat> paranormal research, in uh, parapsychology, psychic phenomena, UFO research, etc., cetera, uh, over the years I've done some pretty good scientists have been interested in this work, and they all find tremendous opposition, not uh, because of the work, but even if they make a suggestion or uh, set up plans to do research 
there is tremendous opposition from their fellow scientists and from other people uh, just to prevent the work from even being discussed or done. Why is that? Uh, well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, primarily, uh, I think if, if in fact, uh, the paranormal or psychic functioning is occurring because of a difference in our construct in how reality operates, then we, of course, are faced with having to change all of our opinions of reality or, or how reality operates. That can be very threatening to a lot of the, the baseline premises supporting other science. Uh, the other problem involves uh, more of a personal uh, area in that many scientists uh, are either, they come in one of two ilks. One is they're very wedded to some theologic idea or they're very non-witted to a theological idea. In other words, they're either atheists or they're firm believers in a, a power that moves things. So in either case, uh, discovering or underscoring an ability that tends to solidify the spiritual side of man or exists within a spiritual nature in man is a very threatening thing. And I think that this is where a lot of that comes from. Okay, well, thank you very much. All right, thank you very much for the call. Um, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Joe McGonagall. Hi. Hi. Um, my question is um, when um, I am projecting, um, I have a problem with being paralyzed when I'm coming back. I was wondering if... Um, if well, what do you mean by projecting? Are you talking about an OBE? Um, uh, yeah, like an out-of-body experience. Yes. Um, or uh, m my whole body and mind goes to where I'm looking. And when um, I'm like in a sleep and I become paralyzed, and the more I fight it, it's like the more I become paralyzed. And I was wondering if he has the same problem. Well, that... Actually, that, that's really easy to answer. Um, in part of the prelude to to actual sleep or, or to the processes of the body going to sleep, uh, there is a disconnect that occurs where you mentally are wide awake and functioning, but you're disconnected in a sense physically from the rest of your body, and it translates into a form of paralysis where you, you think you'd like to move your arm, but it won't move and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And that, that's a very normal occurrence, and it occurs with everyone who can retain consciousness long enough as they're going to sleep or retain consciousness early enough when they're waking up to notice. Joe, we've done uh, extensive uh, talking on this program about out-of-body experiences, uh, the Monroe Institute, uh, and on and on and on and on. A lot of guests on the subject. I, I've got kind of a funny story. Um, for a few years now, as we've discussed all of this, I've come to that state where I've been paralyzed, even heard the buzzing, and frankly, I'm such a control freak that it made me nauseated, and I yanked myself out, out of it every single time. I could no more let that go than the man in the moon. Um, I, I can't lose that kind of control, and so I've never been able to allow myself to go from that point and actually have an OBE. But I was recently in Paris, 
Joe, and I was lying in bed with my wife, and without any warning, without any paralysis, without any precursor of any sort, I shot up at an indescribable velocity out of my body and above the city of Paris in some kind of space. All I've been able to do is describe it as a, the, the, the greatest feeling of ecstasy that I have ever felt. So great there are not words to describe it. It shocked me so badly, I, I snapped right back, uh -huh. and I woke my wife up, and I started telling her about it. And it's never happened before. I can't say it will never happen again, but it's nothing I will to occur, knew was occurring, or had any warning about. Boom. It just happened. Now, I was completely out of my currents. I do a radio show every day. Very structured life. Uh, I was on vacation in Paris. Total change. Right. That's when it happened. Well, in fact, uh, probably 90% of the OBEs are spontaneous with people. Really? And, yes. In, in your case, um, I would suggest that because you were in a different place and because you were probably somewhat tired, uh, maybe from traveling or maybe from jet lag or maybe just from all of the day's activities yes. or all oh, of the above, yes. Yes. Right, you were you were probably not in as much control as you are normally. Uh, I I imagine doing the radio show, you you're very structured about your time, <laughs> and uh, I am. so not being within that scenario, you were you had let go of that control with regard to time. All I can and, say is this: um, you know, I know what a dream is. I've had them all my life, and I've loved many and hated many flying dreams. But always, when I awaken, I say, "Man, cool." Cool dream. I'm right. absolutely exactly. aware. This, I, I'm saying all this so that the people understand that what I had was no dream. What I had was exactly. utterly, completely different than any dream I've had in my whole life. It was not a dream. Something yeah. real happened to me. That That's precisely the way you can tell when someone has honestly had an OBE versus uh, a lucid dream or something that's very similar. Um, there, there, there is no other context. It, it is most definitely an OBE, and it's not like any dream that anyone could ever have. When somebody has uh, an event like that, are they in the same realm that remote viewers uh, use to um, discern the information they discern? Uh, generally speaking, I would say no. However... Uh, there are people who could be considered remote viewers who are in that realm simply because they're having their OBE within the confines of a remote viewing protocol. In, in other words, if whatever methodology you're using is happening within a remote viewing protocol, then you could consider it remote viewing. Uh, uh, all right, all right. Uh, listen, we're at the end of the hour, um, and I know that I should probably let you rest. I will, however, offer you one more hour if you like it. I've got it. Okay, we can do it. Really? Oh, excellent. The phone's going, of course, off the hook. Um, so stay right where you are, and we'll be right back. Joe McGonagall is my guest. Remote viewer number 001 in the government's program. The one you may have seen uh, exposed on Nightline. Uh, so we're dealing here with a heavyweight, and if you have questions for him, uh, we'd 
just love to hear them. I'm Mark Bell, and this, of course, is Coast to Coast AM. the best of Art Bell. It was about a year and a half ago that Linda Moulton Howe, well actually that I began getting reports of frogs that were dying. Do you remember that? We've been talking about that for a year and a half. Linda Moulton Howe has done endless reports on it. And you know a lot of people uh, consistently called me and said what a bunch of BS. Frogs are not dying. Uh, there are very limited deformities. They come from some sort of snake, something or another. There have been all kinds of things said about it. But let me tell you, here is a Reuters news story. None other than our own federal government, an environmental group and a children's TV show have joined forces to figure out what the hell's going on with the frogs. Our Interior Secretary, Bruce Babbitt, said... Numerous studies show that frogs are dying in alarming numbers. Others are turning up with gross deformities. Uh, the real question, uh, questions are why now and why is this happening in so many places around the world? That's from Babbitt, folks. I said exactly the same thing uh, a year and a half ago. The fact that it was occurring in Tokyo in Africa, in Europe, here in North America, that uh, we should be watching very carefully because something's going on. And a year and a half later, finally, an acknowledgement from our own government, which leads me to the following with you, Joe. Um, we've got some real environmental problems, some really serious problems. We've got chunks of the Antarctic uh, breaking off. We've got um, apparent warming going on, controversial, political, but uh, it definitely seems to be occurring because known uh, ice fields are in specific retreat that they can measure. We've got some ozone problems. We've got a lot of problems, uh, Joe. And I wonder if you know anything about where that's leading. Um, I, I agree. We do have a lot of problems, and, and I think we're guilty for causing quite a few of them. Um, certainly, certainly with, uh, with regard to atomic weapon testing and whatnot over the last, uh, last 50 years, we've spread enough contagion around the planet that, uh, it's having an effect. Uh, in other words, I think we've thoroughly crapped at our nest and now we're paying for it. Uh, with regard to a lot of these things, however, they could also be major cyclic changes that the world or the planet goes through on a normal basis. And because we're we're in a period of time when when we do have such uh, intricate communication ability and and you know we can exchange information so readily, we may be now noticing them for the first time. But is there anything uh, in remote viewing itself, in looking at the future, that would suggest um, 
which oh, is the case. Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, regardless of whether you believe it's cyclic or not, um, in in my uh, my book, The Ultimate Time Machine, I'm predicting a period of time in the next, uh, certainly within the next 75 years, that we're going to see significant uh, sea level changes uh, along the coast, uh, which means during full moons there's going to be water in a lot of people's basements. Um, I don't think that that'll be a disaster in terms of it all happening overnight, but it'll certainly affect us economically. You know, there'll probably be three to four trillion dollars in in changes necessary to deal with it. Yeah, it's hard, very hard to look, of course, at uh, at the long term because we haven't even been monitoring the weather for that long. Exactly. But, but it it would seem as though cyclical or permanent change, no matter which way you look at it. There is a definite change underway right now. Absolutely. Uh, I I don't think there's a question of doubt about that, Uh, particularly with uh, significant weather pattern changes uh, across certainly North America and and Europe. The uh, government itself warned that we are about to have the worst winter this coming winter, uh, the worst winter we've had in 40 to 50 years. And I don't know on what basis they make that prediction, but it's out there. That'll that'll be an interesting winter then. Um, I I kind of think it's exciting actually to be living in a period of time when uh, so many significant things could be happening. Um, it certainly keeps life from being dull. That it does. The Chinese, the old Chinese Chris. Uh, first time caller line. You're on the air with Joe McGonigal. Hi. Good evening, Art. Joe. Pleasure to speak with you both. Interesting program. Thank you. Uh, I have a couple questions if Joe cares to address them. One, uh, has he ever remote viewed the green fireballs that, he, that have been a uh, topic of discussion this evening? <laughs> Two, uh, might, would he care to address the tactical nuke strike that he talked about earlier? All right, uh, ho- hold on. Uh, one at a time then. Uh, the green fireballs, these incredible things, things generally traversing our atmosphere. UFOs, have you remote viewed? Um Actually, uh, in terms of the green fireballs, I of course haven't, since that's a recent phenomenon, and I don't I don't generally select my own targets; they have to be uh, delivered to me blind. The subject of U- uh, UFOs. But as as far as UFOs, yeah, I I have uh, at least accidentally viewed uh, UFOs in conjunction with other targets on a, on a few occasions. Uh, my sense of it is that UFOs are definitely vehicles, and that. Uh, that they're not not from here, whatever that means. I'm not thoroughly convinced personally yet that they're alien derived. They may in fact be time machines or or could be uh, intradimensional uh, vehicles of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I just haven't got enough information to make that decision yet in my own mind. But they're very definitely hardened vehicles um, and have a profound physical effect on anyone that's near them. I suspect that they're probably uh, most visible to us when they're either entering or leaving our reality, and that once they're here, uh, they're not perceivable. In other words, they have some form of shielding, uh, or they're only here temporarily, that sort of thing. You're you're such um, a careful guy as we go through the interview in so many areas, and then suddenly you just blow me away. (laughs) (laughs) And again, you know, these are just my personal opinions. I, I, you know, 
can only say that that's been my experience. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one political question that I, I said I was going to ask and I'm going to ask, our president okay. seems to be in big trouble right now. Do you ever um, do political uh, targeting? Uh, y yes, I do. Um, as a matter of fact, I can. What I, the way I'd like to answer that, um, my wife told me two years ago when he was elected the second time to office, she said that uh, she came in and announced that it was probably going to not work. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, he, every president that's ever been voted into office uh, during a void of course moon has never fulfilled the obligation. So she predicted two years ago that he would not finish out his term. The exact same thing that a man named Sean David Morton said. Uh-huh. Exact same thing. Uh, yeah. he's, he's a frequent guest on my program and eerily right about almost everything he said, and that's one of the things he said. Void, of course, Moon. Exactly. And, and, and I don't see politically how he could finish out his term under the kinds of pressures he's being, he's being put under. Um, I, I would like to say personally, however, that um, I would like to have four hours with uh, Star sitting at a table and my interrogating him uh, for him to, for you know, to properly put all this into perspective. I, I think that it's it's unconscionable that the way they've been treating the office of the president, and I'm not in any way you know acknowledging or or uh, you know saying that Condone, I agree you're with not some condoning. Of obviously, uh, I feel exactly the same way, and. You know, if you're able, and I always get in trouble with this, for, for this, and I really don't care, but if you separate his personal conduct from his uh, job conduct, which I think a lot of Americans are able to do, I'm able to do it, then as a president, we've had worse. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I'll go even one further than that. The very people that are condemning him for his personal conduct uh, part of their personal conduct is to support that office of the presidency as far as how it, uh, it, it re represents the American public and the American country. And they're doing a great disservice in the way that they're, they're presenting that right now in a public sense. So, well, I, I was prepared. I, I was scared to death of the guy before he became president. I mean, I really was not looking forward to the Clinton presidency. So I did a turnaround watching what he's been doing, not what he's been saying. Exactly. Um, I, I did not vote for him. Um, I did not like him as a candidate for presidency. Yeah. However, I have to say that based on what's occurred over the past number of years, that at least he is, uh, he's kept it on a course that's been a positive one. But you don't think he'll make it? No, I don't. At the present time, I don't. I don't think he will. I think the that there's just too much stacked stacked against him, and there's too many people with uh, the kind of power to see that through. And uh, it's unfortunate, but I think that uh, the the uh, prediction of the void of course moon is going to hold true. All right, uh, wild card line. You're on the air. Good uh, good morning, Joe McGonigal and Art Beller here. Where are you? Hello, Wild Card hello. Line. Yes? Yes, hello. This is Joe from Philadelphia. Hello, Joe. Okay, Art and Joe, uh, good morning to you all. Good morning. Uh, I, right now I'm looking at a poster that my wife has given to me, uh, and it sits above my desk at work, and it says, Have no fear of what the future holds, for God holds the future. Uh, relating to, <clears throat> you know, 
events that you conduct, you know, with yourself and seeing into the future, uh, do you feel as though we are reaching into areas that are godlike in this? Can can we be certain that we are not encroaching on the higher beings uh, event calendar? <laughs> well, That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I I think. I think one of the important things to remember here is that uh, one of the reasons that one of the reasons that uh, make us unique, or one of the things that make us unique as as uh, uh, beings uh, within this reality, is the fact that we are born with uh, free will. And part of what makes uh, our theologic beliefs uh, important uh, in that respect is our ability to choose and think about God and the Creator in our own way and to uh, to bring whatever form of worship we want to that. I think in the case of free will, that means that it's up to us to do what we believe is the positive or constructive thing that that's meant to be. And and so we bring a lot of, uh, a lot of activity or a lot of action to that. Okay, w- w- with that thought in mind, the positive thing that we could do, uh, on Earth, we have what we would consider as very evil people. Uh, an example would be a Saddam Hussein. And if we have the ability to know where he's going to be and what he's going to do, wouldn't it be beneficial to mankind to more or less exterminate or eliminate somebody like him? Well, the the problem you run into when you start start considering these kinds of things is you have to take into consideration the stability that he might bring. As bad as the context might be that it's brought in, he does bring a relative degree of stability to that region and may in fact be the buffer that is preventing uh, an all-out war for power uh, in the northern area of Iraq at the moment. Uh, certainly, if he was to be eliminated, there may not be a strong enough person to take his place, which could uh, could result in an invasion of uh, Iraq by you know some other country and all-out war in the Middle East, from which tens of millions of people would suffer, uh, you know, severely. So, you know, those decisions are really hard to make, and I, for one, don't don't like making a decision about the life or death of another human being in that regard. I, I would much rather try to work with what's available and try to make things positive that way. But it, it, if he would have this ability or this this knowledge, this capability that is available to you or to other people, uh, don't you think that he would use it in an adverse effect on you know mankind as he has done with any weapons that he has uh, available to him? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he would because he's basically uh, uh, a nasty person. I mean, he's a very negative, very destructive kind of individual, and he he certainly has only uh, one motive in mind. That's his own. However, um, there are a lot of people that live on the planet that are just like him that have no power simply because we don't give that give that power to them. Mm-hmm. And so, over time, I think we're diluting his power base and. He could have whatever uh, access to whatever weapon system he'd like. He just will simply lose his power base altogether and 
and eventually go away. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Joe McGonigal. Good morning. Hello there. Hello. Yes, sir. Hi, this is Ron from the Philadelphia area. Yes, sir. 1210 AM radio. Yes, sir. First of all, I wanted to ask Joe, where do they get the target coordinate numbers from? Well, this, uh, again, there, there's a lot of myth about coordinates. Uh, way, way back in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, they used coordinates simply because it was a cheap method of getting someone to a target versus using an outbounder. And those coordinates were actually map coordinates. An outbounder? I, I don't know what that uh, is. Anymore. An outbounder was originally, in the original use of remote viewing, they would actually send a human being to the target. Oh, and then target that human being, thinking that uh, another human being had to be present in order to pass the information, possibly. I guess they found out that was not so. That's correct. Uh, and the way they found that out was using coordinates. But using coordinates, um, we were attacked very severely for that. I, I was accused of having an eidetic memory and having memorized all the important coordinate systems in the world. All right. Uh, very important. Uh, we're coming right back to it as we... Uh around the half-hour mark. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM with Joe McGonigal. Talk with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from outside the U.S. First, dial your access number to the USA. Then, 800-893-0903. If you're a first-time caller, call Art at 702-727-1222. From east of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. Call Art at 1-800-618-8255 or call Art on the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye. Well, I'll tell you something that should have been remote viewed. And there is a very strange story going on in my little town of Parump. Very strange indeed. Uh, let me just read you what the Daily Telegraph had to say, all right? Los Angeles. Police are investigating the death of a former Las Vegas casino boss after three men were arrested in the desert digging up a vault containing, check this out folks, $26 million worth of silver belonging to him. He's Ted Binion, who uh, until very recently owned Binion's horseshoe. 
the site of the annual World, World Series of Poker. He was found dead at his home in what they think might be an accidental drug overdose, but they don't know. Police are questioning his girlfriend. Um, Binion's treasure, and this is going to blow your mind, was in a reinforced concrete vault 4.5 meters below ground right here in the middle of town next to a grocery store in Pahrump. $26 million worth of silver. It came right up out of the ground in the middle of Pahrump the other day. What can I say, folks? I, I live in a very, very strange place. This is the end of side one. Please leave the cassette exactly where it is, flip it over, and begin again. Coast AM continues with Art Bell. I, I'm curious. I'm very curious. Um, would it be possible? I mean, here they were, a darndest thing, my little desert town, and they were digging up a vault the other day with $26 million worth of silver in it. That's a true story. I mean, there was right next to the grocery store. Is there any application at all in, uh, Joe, in uh, looking for, uh, trying to remote view treasure uh, there is um, however in this case I probably would have used the magnometer <laughs> have, <laughs> that's true I certainly lit that machine up in a hurry but boy it sure would um, you you need a reasonable reason for looking somewhere and then uh, of course you can use remote viewing uh, one of the problems you run into is being very very specific about the location uh, obviously if something's buried three to four meters in the ground, that entails a lot of digging or at least gaining some entry to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, think, I think more to the point is that you would, you would need some place of origin to start, you know, some idea about a treasure being in a certain location in order to try to apply remote viewing. Okay, here's the one thing about remote viewing that I never really quite understood. Uh, I understand that originally you would send somebody to the location to be viewed. Right. But I have never understood the process by which a control generates a random set of numbers that are a target that the remote viewer goes after. I have always imagined the only thing that can be occurring here is a transference from the control to the remote viewer uh, by some mental means of what the tar- target is. Otherwise, uh, what process is occurring? What, what actually happened very, very early on in the project when we went from the actual person going to a target to uh, physical map locations uh, yes. and using map coordinates, yes. um, for obvious reasons, that wasn't going to work for skeptics. So we started putting those coordinates into sealed envelopes. Uh, the difficulty we ran into then is in dealing with subjects who are new to remote viewing, it's, it's a much larger leap 
from being able to remote view something that's identified by a blank envelope than identifying, being identified by some numerical system that at least is a proxy for the target. Uh, yes, so but, uh, yes, but a proxy, oh, you mean a specific proxy for the target, like longitude and latitude? Right, only, only in this case you invent a set of numbers or letters. Yeah, well, that's where I fall off the cliff with this. Well, in other words, the only thing that can be occurring once you've gone to random is a transference. Actually, n none of that. Um, what, what the actual targeting mechanism is, that at least what we believe it is, is intent. Intent. It's what everyone has agreed to as the intent of the outcome. That gets you to the target. Uh -huh. Now, having said that, I need to go back and say that you can't take what I just said and apply it within a training scenario because when you're dealing with someone, you're trying to convince can target something uh, with basically just intent. That's a piecemeal situation. You have to walk them to that belief. So you start out by targeting them on uh, targets that have at least a proxy uh, targeting mechanism, which would be a set of coordinates, whether they're invented or otherwise. Huh. Remarkable. All right, uh, here we go. First time caller line. Uh, you're on the air. Hi, uh, my name's Tom, San Diego area. Hi, Tom. Hey, uh, uh, Joe, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, you or any of your team uh, ever done any remote uh, viewing or and discovery of any uh, catastrophic uh, solar flares hitting the Earth, uh, for instance, uh, in April of 99? All right, well, that's a good question because we've been having an unusual, strange amount of, uh, of solar activity, some pretty wild stuff. We have solar cycles. They're normal. Some of what's occurring seems abnormal. Uh, one of the things that is really nice about living on the Earth instead of some other planet is that we do have a, a nice atmosphere that protects us from that sort of thing. Um, there are certainly is some degree of effect from some of the bursts of uh, electromagnetics, you know, that are involved in a solar flare. They're most readily noticeable within certain frequencies of, of radio communication or, or uh, broadcast communication. Um, I, don't, I don't know of any other effect that I would project that I know of, uh, at least in terms of the past or the present or the future that would indicate any kind of a dire outcome from a solar, affair, a solar flare. Okay, there are Israeli scientists now who believe the dinosaurs were not, in fact, killed by what's known as a KT event, but rather by uh, radiation, sudden uh, immense amounts of radiation. Uh, and they're looking very seriously into that, so... You know, that, that's a distinct possibility, um, but, there, you know, like, that would be, that would be sort of the, uh, you know, I like to look at this as, uh, well, that's sort of the negative side of the same coin. Uh, in looking at a positive side of that coin, you might say that one of the reasons why mankind evolved uh, faster and better than some of the other species that we coexisted with is because the intense radiation from one of those flares might have caused a genetic change in mm. our brain's makeup right. that caused us to grow additional cells. Or they may have died so we might be here. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's always, I always try to look for the the constructive first <laughs> and uh, then deal with the 
the negative later. Yes. All right. Um, wild card line, uh, you're on the air with Joe McGonagall. Hi. Oh, oh hi, uh, Joe. Um, I was wondering if you ever remote viewed who built the pyramids and then like there's other structures, uh, these uh, Nazca lines in Peru and um, uh, these temples in Cambodia, they all, all involve like heavy stone structures and they align to uh, constellations. It's a very good question. I would imagine it would be an irresistible target. Everybody wants to know how the heck the pyramids were built. That would be something that could be remote viewed, could it not? Uh, yes, in fact, it's uh, it's in the ultimate time machine as of past viewing, and uh, I actually did the remote viewing, and it was a double blind scenario in 1983, and what I had was uh, essentially a vision of a large placid lake, and they were using the the surface of this uh, this man-made lake to uh, create a perfectly flat engineering plane, and they were using the water to lubricate a certain kind of saw to level the stones in the first two or three layers of the pyramid. Really? Um, they use large rafts to move the stones, and and I saw a, a formal dock area and that sort of thing. What's what's fascinating is in 1983 when I did that, I, I actually took that material to the uh, Egyptology lab at uh, SRI and was promptly laughed out of the room. Really? Yeah, and uh, it was about a year ago, uh, maybe a little longer now, on the front page of the L.A. Times, they came out with an article, uh, science, scientists, archaeologists have discovered an archaic lake that existed in, in the middle of the desert and now theorize that uh, the Egyptians or whoever built the Great Pyramid probably uh, moved stones using rafts, and, and they were surprised to find out they had actually had a paved road and a dock area and saws and all that sort of thing. Wow. And uh, I, I can't help but think if some, just one person had been open to remote viewing in 1983, they could have said, well, if this is correct, then you can look at a topographical map and see where that lake would have had to have been, uh, you know, hypothesized where the edges of that lake would have had to have been to do that, and you could have gone there and discovered that, you know, 17 years earlier or whatever. Uh, that wasn't done because no one had an open mind. I have an article here um, which came from the Electronic Telegraph entitled Remote Views, CIA Signed Up Psychics as Spooks. And they're talking about Dr. Putoff mm -hmm. and the beginnings of all this. And apparently they told him there was increasing concern within the t intelligence community, the birth of all this, about the Soviet interest in parapsychology, they asked if Dr. Putoff could arrange for a demonstration of Ingo Swan's abilities. The results of those experiments in which objects were hidden in boxes impressed the CIA sufficiently to commission Dr. Putoff to set up a more detailed study. If remote viewing were to be of any intelligence value to the CIA, questions such as how far away the site could be, whether a sender had to be present at the target site needed to be addressed. Now, is that essentially an accurate uh, description of how it all began? Yes, I would say it is. Absolutely. You have lived through some interesting times yourself, haven't you? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, we've done some very interesting targeting over the years, and uh, some of it's worked very well and some of it hasn't worked at all. Uh, I think the thing to remember is that 
we really don't know a great deal about how the information is transferred. We know something about what affects it, and we also have some degree of uh, knowledge about how it might be improved to a certain extent. But in terms of its consistency, it still suffers. Uh, in terms of its accuracy, uh, it's very, very difficult to determine accuracy prior to uh, post-doc analysis of the results. Um, so, you know, it leaves a lot to be desired. But I, I think what's important to state is that we absolutely, you can absolutely be assured based on 25 years of research that uh, psychic functioning is real and that uh, it's within the human capacity. Oh, I I believe that without uh, w without hesitation. Um, east of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning. Where are you, please? I'm in Tennessee, Art. This is Roger. Yes, Roger. I wanted to ask Joe if he's remote uh, remote viewed the, uh, the Y2K problem. <laughs> and a question for you also. All right. Uh, yeah, really good question, actually. Y2K is coming up quickly, and I've had a number of guests, Joe, very knowledgeable, and it's backed up by things the government has said, even the president. This incredible thing that's coming toward us, a fixed date uh, that is going to, that could uh, account for a collapse of a good part of society, civilization as we know it, power grids, uh, banks, commerce. Is it going to be a major event? in, in uh, 2000 or not? I, I think absolutely it's going to be a significant event. Um, one of the things that, that I say in my ultimate time machine, uh, I say right up front and forward that I, don't I specifically don't address the Y2K problem. And the reason I don't is because we know about it. And it's real easy to hypothesize exactly where the problems might fall. In other words, it's so obvious it doesn't need remote viewing. Exactly, and I, and I think the serious problem, there's two serious problems here. One is uh, the total disregard for the fact that it's going to occur. I think a lot of people just, quite frankly, think someone else is going to take care of the problem. I know. And so they don't address it. Uh, the area of concern, my concern, is more of a social one than a... Uh, than a technological one. Yep. I, I think technologically we can solve the problem, and it'll take time. Yeah, that, socially, that's what I was have, wondering about. We have a serious, serious problem socially in that over the past 50 years we have essentially developed a whole new managerial level within government without where people make decisions based on computer runs and whether or not the right columns filled in. And they, don't, they don't, no longer make those decisions based on intuitive gut feeling or instinct. And as a result of that, when these people are forced to make some very major decisions because of a lack of automation, uh, they may be making the wrong ones. And mm -hmm. that's going to have a great deal of impact across the board. I'm, I'm afraid I agree with that as well. Uh, caller, you had something else? Well, uh, WWTN Talk Radio, John Grayson, yes. was talking here the other night, said something about Africanized killer bees. Uh, I guess round. Yeah, I, I live in a very interesting place. There's an Associated Press story out right now saying that my little town of Pahrump is now the host of swarms of killer bees. I mean, it's like I ask, what next, locusts? <laughs> you never know. Y2K and sun, <laughs> solar flares. The bees, uh, killer bees, swarms of killer bees really makes a person go out uh, comfortable to go out at night. 
Um, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Joe McGonigal, and not a lot of time left. Hello. Is this me? It, well, you know that for certain, but it yeah, sounds okay. like you It seems like I've been waiting a long time. Well, here you I'm are. Through, uh, I'm calling from the state of Washington. My name is John. I have two areas. Number one, uh, it was brought up that some areas of research are not gotten into by maybe even remote viewers because it disagrees with their theology. That's right. So uh, uh, I believe, now this is my one area, that reincarnation could be validated by remote viewing. Now, don't comment. The other area is uh, one interviewee on the Art Bell Show made the statement that UFO abductions are done with the permission of the person who's abducted, and the only way that permission could be given would be uh, prior to being born in the life that they're living where they get abducted from. Oh, well, I would disagree with that premise right away. Uh, let's comment on the first. Uh, is there any indication in any remote viewing you have done that a person exists on the earth plane in three dimensions more than once? Um, I address this, actually, within my book. Really? And I I personally do not hold to the premise of reincarnation. Having, having said that, I have to say that I do hold to the premise that we exist in multiple carnations, incarnations, which means that um, I exist perhaps in 2,000 lives simultaneously. I, I am, in fact, a Roman soldier as I am talking on the phone now. Or I am, in fact, the star traveler in the year 3000. You're, in, fa in effect, talking about a mass consciousness. Right. In, in collective. Where time space is not material. A collective consciousness. Right. I and, and I think we incarnate in that, that way. Um, I don't know if that is very understandable in the limited amount of time I had to say it, but... It is. We could have used more time. We can always use more time. Uh, obviously, a show like this could go on forever and ever, and we will have you back again, but this one's over. I'm afraid we're out of time. And you're probably thankful because it must be near 6 o'clock in the morning back there. It's 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, it's been a pleasure. It's been uh, fun, Yeah, it has. Um, and, and people can get your books at uh, Amazon.com and I presume in Barnes & Noble and places like that. That's correct. I'll look for it. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Good night. Thank you, Art. Good night. That's Joe McGonigal, folks. And uh, again, we've got links to his, as a matter of fact, to his personal website. So if you want to see and uh, read more about what you just heard about, go on up there and take a look. Go to www.artbell.com. Scroll down until you see the name Joe McGonigal, and you'll see the two websites. That's what the mouse is for. Click, click. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, tomorrow night, David Adair. Sorry, we're out of time. Till then, good night. Good night.